Welcome to the Cato Institute, or welcome to the Cato Institute in exile over here in Mount Vernon Place United Methodist Church. Uh, we're delighted to have found a place at least nearby that we could hold events. Uh, if anybody's got a coat they want to hang up, there's a coat closet over there, and after the event we will have uh, soft drinks and cheese out here. This is a Methodist church, so there will be no wine. Um, however, Acadiana is right across the street, and I am sure they have wine. Um, so if you need anything, uh, please go over there. Um, we'll go ahead and get started. I will introduce our speaker, and then, uh, given that we don't have a table up here, I'll just let him take questions, so he'll be up here at the podium for a while. I have known Jeff Friedman for a long time. I knew him when he was a teenage libertarian. I knew him when he started Critical Review on a shoestring. I knew him when he published his 60-page attack on my book, Libertarianism, a Primer. But I've never actually known him to write a book himself on a contemporary policy issue, and especially right after editing a book on the same topic. So I know that he feels very strongly about the importance of the financial crisis, its causes, and how to avoid similar outcomes in the future. Jeff Friedman holds degrees from Brown University and Berkeley and a PhD from Yale. He is currently a visiting fellow, visiting scholar in the Department of Government at the University of Texas and the Max Weber Fellow at the Institute for the Advancement of the Social Sciences at Boston University. But really, he's the founder, editor, publisher, fundraiser, and principal contributor uh, to the magazine Critical Review. He conceived this magazine, this journal, and he has kept it going for an amazing 25 years through his own vision and drive. And that, as anybody who's tried to organize any publication or organization knows is a tremendous achievement. Now, along with his journal editing, he has produced two books. The first one was an edited collection, both of them published by the University of Pennsylvania Press. The first one was an edited collection, What Caused the Financial Crisis? And now he is the co-author of Engineering the Financial Crisis, Systemic Risk and the Failure of Regulation. There are, of course, copies outside for purchase, and I'm sure he would be glad to sign them uh, at the reception. He has a handout. If you didn't get one, um, we'll get more copies in here. There are some out on the table. And with that, I will turn it over to Dr. Jeffrey Friedman. Thank you, David. Um, yeah, well, I do feel strongly, uh, as most people do, that the financial crisis is a terrible thing and we need to do what we can to prevent future occurrences. Um, but really, um, I have to admit that what moved me to write the book um, was that in the research that I had done for a special issue of Critical Review on the, on the causes of the crisis, which became this, the, the first book that David mentioned, What Caused the Financial Crisis, um, I learned something that, that probably many, many um, casual observers of the financial crisis also would have learned from newspaper coverage which is that the um, investments that seem to have gotten the banks in trouble were rated AAA. And yet the emerging narratives of the crisis, which have now um, pretty much solidified into stone, held that greedy, reckless bankers were responsible for the crisis. And that's true whether you believe in the too big to fail theory of the crisis or the 
um, corporate compensation. Bankers were paid, uh, were, were, were uh, received bonuses for short-term gains, but they weren't penalized for long-term losses. So in both cases, that they were deliberately taking risks that they knew um, might might be disastrous, or they knew that, in some sense, the the uh, the cost might outweigh the gain, and yet they seem to have bought the least um, lucrative of the mortgage bonds that were available, at least among the privately issued rated bonds, because something that I did not know um, before I read the papers and edited the papers for our issue on the financial crisis is that with bonds, um, the higher the rating, the lower the yield, because bond investors are trading yield for safety. So one would have thought that greedy, reckless bankers, whether because they are assured that they'll be bailed out if they do, do something too risky, or because they get a bonus if they do something too risky, but it, it brings in handsome profits in the meantime, um, they should have bought at least double A bonds, if not triple B bonds. And there were even double B and occasionally single B bonds available issued against tr tranches of mortgage-backed securities. Um, this is the anomaly that I just couldn't get out of my head. And a couple of the contributors to um, our special issue on the financial crisis, especially uh, Viral Acharya and Matthew Richardson of NYU, and uh, Julius Yableski and Mateusz Mahaj of the Central Bank of Poland and a university whose name I forget in, in uh, some city in Poland whose name who, that I forget, I'm sorry. Um, they pointed to an alternative theory of the crisis that has not gotten much traction um, and they themselves I don't think would agree with, with the direction that I took this in. But they blamed the crisis, in some part at least, on capital adequacy regulations, popularly known as the Basel Rules. Um, now, the Basel Rules privileged mortgage-backed securities or any other asset-backed security rated AAA or AA. And what it means when they privilege those types of investments is that they penalize banks that made other types of investments, not just in lower-rated tranches of asset-backed securities, but business loans, for example. Even mortgage loans were penalized in relation to holding AA or AAA mortgage-backed bonds. So this is why um, I allowed myself to be talked into writing a book that I really have no qualifications to write. David was kind enough not to mention that my, my degree from Berkeley is in, <laughs> in uh, history, my degree from, in college is in philosophy, and my PhD is in political science, and it's the subfield known as political theory or political philosophy. I'm not an economist. But the economists seemed to be so preoccupied with these two very simple, straightforward incentive narr narratives, too big to fail and bonus compensation, that they, even the ones in, in our issue of Critical Review who mentioned um, capital adequacy regulations, didn't put two and two together and recognize, it seemed to me, the contradiction in believing a reckless banker narrative and then saying that the reckless bankers bought AAA-rated bonds. Um, so that's what the, the impetus of the book was. I know that there are people here 
um, from the banking industry who I would have loved to be able to talk to in writing the book, and maybe you will set me straight. Maybe if you're kind, you'll do it privately afterwards, um, but I'll take public questions too. We did not, we were not able, my co-author and I were not able to talk to um, very many insiders, and it always troubled me that we could be completely wrong because what we're giving is a theory of decision making at banks, yet we hadn't talked to any decision makers because we just didn't know how to make contact with any. Um, the theory is that capital adequacy regulations turned the mortgage crisis, the housing, the bursting of the housing bubble into a financial crisis. So this book is not a book about the entire genesis of the current recession. It's not a book about credit expansion, which may in turn have created or contributed to the housing bubble. It's not a book about what caused the housing bubble or what caused the housing bubble to burst. We do have a chapter on mark-to-market accounting in which we speculate that what translated the banking crisis into the recession, at least initially, was that when there was a market panic about the value of mortgage-backed securities, um, the law required banks to write that down against their capital, and that forced them to contract lending, potentially in the trillions of dollars if it hadn't been for um, injections of, of new capital, including from the government. Um, but the main story of the book is about just the banking crisis, the financial crisis, not the recession and not the things that led to the, um, uh, the unwisdom of, of banks having invested so much in AAA mortgage-backed securities. Now here's the one technical part that bankers will know well, but the rest of you may not know well, um, and that is how capital adequacy regulations work in a general sense. First of all, there were three sets of them that are relevant. There was Basel I, agreed to by the world, most of the world's international banking, I mean national banking regulators, but agreed to internationally um, in 1988. They were implemented in the United States in 1991. Second, there was the recourse rule, which applied only to American commercial banks and savings and loans and was issued by the American financial regulators in 2001. And then there was Basel II, um, agreed to in 2004. Um, and I will not mention Basel II again, except to say that it did exactly what the recourse rule had done in the United States three years earlier, vis-a-vis -vis, um, asset-backed securities. Here's where it gets a little technical. What Basel I had done in 1988 is it had taken the regulation of banks' um, capital and it had addressed an anomaly that had been present ever since this kind of regulation began, which in the United States was in 1933 when deposit insurance was created. Regulators and legislators and um, I imagine economists thought back in 1933 and they still think that deposit insurance created an intolerable moral hazard for bankers. Without the threat of a bank run hanging over their heads, the theory went, bankers would just take reckless risks because deposit insurance had effectively insulated them from bank runs because depositors no longer cared about which bank they were 
they were putting their money with. Um, all banks were the same because all banks would be bailed out if something went wrong. So at the same time that deposit insurance was instituted, usually, in the United States at least, it was the case that capital adequacy regulations were imposed at the same time as a protection against this new moral hazard that deposit insurance had created. The idea of capital adequacy regulation is force banks to maintain a margin for error. That's what equity capital basically is in any corporation. It's a margin for error um, of, say, 10%, so that if a bank's investments or loans um, go bad at a 10% rate or up to a 10% rate, the bank still won't become insolvent. It can be an 8% rate, a 12% rate, whatever, but that's the, the basic and very sound idea between, behind a capital cushion. Um, I consider this book actually an Austrian, a, a, an attempt at an Austrian theory um, of, the, of the financial crisis and of politics, because, or, or at least regulatory politics, um, because I think Karen Vaughan would agree with me um, that the kernel of Austrian school economics is not a particular business cycle theory um, or theory of what caused this particular uh, uh, recession. Rather, it is an understanding of the ubiquity and importance of ignorance in human affairs. Um, capital cushions are designed to allow for human ignorance by giving bankers or any other corporation a margin for error. Without going into the technicalities of why that's true, what capital is and all that, which we cover in the book, um, the, the, the anomaly was that now you're saying to banks, regulators are saying to banks, um, okay, you have to keep 10% capital, but if they are indeed reckless, greedy bankers because of the, the uh, incentive created um, to be reckless by, the, by deposit insurance, then still they're going to, they're going to make the, all the investments that this 10% is a margin against, they're going to make them as speculative and risky as possible. On the other hand, um, if, if there were a bank that invested 100% in treasury bills or uh, gold or something like that, they would be required to keep the same 10%, let us say, capital margin as a bank that um, spent all its money, uh, lent all its money to startups in, in people's garages. So one thing that the Basel, that Basel I did is attempt to harmonize different um, banking capital adequacy regulations in different countries, which sometimes gave banks in one country a competitive advantage over another country. But another thing they did was try to address this anomaly by breaking um, banks' assets down into categories of riskiness. The idea was that you would impose um, higher capital um, requirements against the riskiest assets, meaning what the regulators thought were the riskiest assets. So Basel I set an 8% capital charge, but that only applied to what was in what was called the 100% risk bucket, meaning the riskiest assets that a bank could have. The 100% bucket is everything except what's in the less risky buckets. So this everything includes business loans, consumer loans to individuals, plant and equipment, every, every kind of, of investment or loan that a bank has, all of which count as assets in the 
sometimes counterintuitive world of banking. Um, so business loans were in the 100% risk bucket. Mortgages were the only thing in the 50% risk bucket, which meant that banks had to keep only 4%, or rather invest only 4% capital for every four mortgage loans. There was a 20% risk bucket for um, government-sponsored agencies, which weren't quite explicitly guaranteed. They weren't quite explicitly the same thing as government debt, sovereign debt, such as Fannie and Freddie in the United States. So only 20% of the capital um, was required for, for um, Fannie and Freddie bonds. And then there was a 0% risk bucket into which were placed cash, gold, and sovereign debt government bonds. Uh, in the United States, the regulators had created um, a separate category of banks, two separate categories of banks, well capitalized and adequately capitalized. The 8% and then the, the percentages of 8% apply to adequately capitalized banks, but 99% of American banks are considered well capitalized, which carries certain privileges with it. And so they're the flat capital charge against the 100% risk bucket including business loans, is 10%. I'm going to just use those figures because they're easier to work with. So this is the end of the complicated part. Um, under Basel I, uh, a bank that made, a well-capitalized U.S. bank that made business loans had to fund 10% of every, say, $10 of every $100 of business loans with capital. Um, but only $5 of every $100 of mortgage loans with capital, $2 of every $100 of mortgage bonds issued by Fannie and Freddie, and they had to fund purchases of sovereign debt or gold with no capital at all. Um, in 2001, in the United States, the recourse rule just made one change, and this was among the changes that in 2004 um, Basel II made on, an, on the international level. And that one change in the United States was that it added AAA and AA rated privately issued mortgage-backed securities to the 20% risk bucket. Um, because for various reasons that are quite legitimate, I think um, asset-backed bonds are considered much safer. It's not just the rating. There's actually a legal structure involved in uh, that is the mechanism of the distribution of proceeds from a mortgage pool, let's say, that in principle justifies a AAA rating. That doesn't mean that the rating agencies get off the hook because they may well have misrated, uh, misjudged how wide the AAA tranche should be. But AAA bondholders get paid before anyone else, like AA bondholders or single-A bondholders. So there's more to it than just the ratings that persuaded the regulators that they can add AA and AAA more, uh, asset-backed bonds to the 20% risk bucket. Now, we argue that the incentive that this created was to load up on asset-backed bonds, um, just like it also created an incentive to load up on sovereign debt. Um, but asset-backed bonds, uh, privately issued asset-backed bonds paid more, a little bit more, but still more than sovereign debt. Um, because keep in mind that if a bank spent $100 on a business loan, they would have to fund it with $10 of capital. But if they bought $100 worth of AAA mortgage-backed securities, they would only have to spend $2 of capital on it. 
And capital is considered by both bankers and other corporate uh, decision makers and regulators as something that is scarce enough um, that to require more capital against a certain type of investment penalizes that investment. And the reason that the uh, Basel regulators and the American regulators were penalizing, in effect, business lending is that they thought that that was riskier on the whole than mortgage lending. And they thought that mortgage lending was riskier on the whole than buying Fannie or Freddie debt or um, privately issued mortgage-backed securities rated AAA or AA. In turn, that was a little riskier than buying sovereign debt or gold. Um, now, we find that the net result of, of the recourse rule in the United States, because we could not find any data really that was useful on, inter on banks abroad, um, so we restrict ourselves to the recourse rule in the United States. And it appears that um, American commercial banks and savings and loans ended up holding three times the proportion of their portfolios in AAA mortgage-backed bonds, as did other investors, just investors at large, um, who were also able to invest in those instruments. So it appears, um, it appears that since the recourse rule is the one thing that distinguishes savings and loans and commercial banks from these other investors, that the recourse rule may have been responsible for two-thirds of the severity of the banking crisis itself in the United States. That's oversimplifying to be sure, um, and I'd be happy to go into details in the question period. Now, notice that this, this, may, this theory of the crisis that we propose in the book, or argue for in the book, um, may bring back the, re, the greedy, reckless bankers narrative at first glance, because our argument is that um, bankers tended more than other investors to buy AAA mortgage-backed securities because of the capital relief that that afforded them, which is a form of um, greediness or recklessness in the abstract. Um, although if they agreed with the regulators that these securities were safer than business loans or consumer loans in the 100% bucket, then it wasn't exactly recklessness. It may have been greed in the sense that they wanted higher returns um, at the same time as reducing their capital requirements. Um, however, there is, unfortunately, we weren't able to find any data on bank purchases of any bonds below the AAA level. In other words, the one widely used data source on this, which was a Lehman Brothers study in 2008, turned up no mortgage-backed bonds rated lower than AAA. However, they were, they were giving figures in the billions. That may mean that they only turned up 499 million. Um, we don't know what it means. Um, more recently on our blog um, site, which I can't remember the URL of, but it's called Causes of the Crisis. So if you, if you Google that, more recent da data has emerged, which suggests that there were some AA purchases, but they were vastly um, outnumbered by AAA mortgage bond purchases by banks. What we do have um, a better, a clearer picture of is the other thing that was in the 20% bucket, which is Fannie and Freddie bonds. Now, Fannie and Freddie, as everybody knows, were implicitly guaranteed by the U.S. government, which through Congress had chartered them. Um, 
And banks held four times as many agency bonds, as they're called, Fannie and Freddie bonds, as they held privately issued AAA mortgage-backed bonds. Agency bonds pay even less than AAA bonds. So again, banks were choosing the least lucrative mortgage-backed bonds that they could find at a roughly four to one ratio over the AAAs, which in turn were much less lucrative than triple Bs would have been if the banks had bought any. The second reason to think that bankers taking advantage of the capital arbitrage opportunities um, presented by having these uh, AAA and AA mortgage-backed securities in the 20% risk bucket. So if you buy that, you reduce the um, uh, amount of capital that you need. This is a little tricky and complicated, but contrary to one of the um, myths about the crisis, commercial bank and saving and loan leverage was flat in the decade before the crisis. Bankers did not leverage up. Whether you measure their assets as, asset, as risk adjusted, according to the regulations, or just their gross assets, the leverage ratios, which are me measured three different ways, they're, they're like this. Um, up until 2008. Investment banks may have been leveraging up, and some commercial banks, such as Citigroup, leveraged up. Others, like, such as J.P. Morgan, deleveraged during the, the run-up to the crisis. Now, normally, capital arbitrage is thought to only be useful if you want to leverage up, because the opposite of capital is leverage. If you have a 10% capital level, that means that the rest of your funding is borrowed. That means you're leveraged at 10 to 1. So why would banks be engaging in capital arbitrage if they're not leveraging up? Our explanation is that regulatory capital minima really are a waste of money for a bank because a bank can't let itself fall below that minimum without losing either the legal privileges associated with being a well-capitalized bank or if it goes below 8% without being seized by the FDIC within 90 days. So banks have to maintain an extra capital cushion above the, the uh, legal limit. And indeed, banks have always maintained an extra capital cushion. It's one of the paradoxes in the academic literature. Why do banks, which are supposedly run by greedy, reckless bankers, maintain more capital than, th than is required by law? For my purposes, though, um, I just want to point out that greedy, reckless bankers would indeed have leveraged themselves to the, to the hilt and therefore, they would have been very close to the 10% um, minimum capital level required for well-capitalized banks. But in fact, it was steady at around 13% um, in the years before the crisis. So this and the predominance of agency bonds in banks' portfolios suggests that in fact, bankers were being rather prudent. Within the confines set and the sort of skew in the calculations um, created by the recourse rule in 2001, because now bankers are figuring in the capital relief that they would get from um, investing in AAA mortgage-backed bonds. Um, but that aside, they still were investing in relatively safe and relatively low-yielding agency bonds, and apparently in relatively safe and relatively low-yielding AAA bonds as opposed to lower-rated bonds. That's the end of my summary of our argument about the financial crisis itself. But I, as a political theorist, was interested in writing this book, not just because of the anomaly of the 
triple A um, rating of the ratings of the securities that supposedly got banks in, greedy and reckless bankers into trouble. I was also interested in what the regulator's apparent mistake in putting um, asset-backed bonds rated double A AA or triple A meant for both my field, which is political theory, and also for what we should think normatively about modern governance, which very frequently is the same thing as regulatory governance. Most of the legal action is produced by regulatory agencies. There's no way that even if Congress met 24 hours a day, they could produce the volume of um, edicts that are required by the general instructions that Congress has written to the regulatory agencies. Regulatory agencies are run by experts, um, as much as anyone can be experts in predicting the future and dealing with a comple complicated world where we are all fallible, even experts, and where experts might be prone, in fact, to special problems because what enables an expert to master a great deal of information, more than the average citizen would, is usually a theory of some kind about the field that he's studying. And that theory, all theories, tend to, tend to screen in information that are confirmatory of the theories, and they tend to render anomalous information that isn't confirmatory of the theories. So regulators, um, as experts, might even be prone to problems that are peculiar to experts, not just the general human problem of ignorance and fall fallibility. Um, and it does seem that the regulators made a mistake here. In fact, Sheila Baer, in testimony before the Financial Crisis Inquiry Committee, in a roundabout way, she mentioned a regulation that was issued in 2001 that was a mistake, and she mentioned that regulators apparently did not understand the risks that they w might be imposing on the system. She didn't name the recourse rule, but I can't imagine what else she might have been talking about because she was talking about rule regulations that encourage banks to buy these, what later came to be thought of as toxic assets. Um, one mistake that, that the regulators made, arguably, is that it didn't occur to them to think about the contribution that behavior that followed the regulations might make to creating an asset bubble in the assets that were privileged by the regulations. Commercial banks and savings and loans bought upwards of 40% of the world issuance of these particular instruments. Now, if, if two-thirds of those purchases are driven not by what the bankers consider the intrinsic merit of the investment, but rather the intrinsic merit given the fact that they're subject to the recourse rule, um, then a tremendous amount of, of the demand for mortgage-backed bonds was created by the recourse rule through its effects on the behavior of bankers who were following the recourse rule. That itself might have contributed to the housing bubble because the way that you create mortgage-backed bonds is by gathering together a pool of hundreds or thousands of mortgages. It might even have contributed to the decline in lending standards for mortgages because the way that mortgage-backed bonds are structured, it doesn't really matter in principle whether the, the collateral, the mortgages, are subprime, Alt-A, prime, um, because what, what entitles a bond issued from a certain tranche to a triple-A or a double-A or a single-A rating isn't so much the collateral, 
It's the fact that the AAA bondholders get paid first from all the mortgages, uh, all the mortgage payments that are made in the entire pool. Um, we have no evidence to back up the speculation that um, the recourse rule or later Basel II might have contributed to the mortgage bubble or the subprime bubble. Um, just as we have no evidence to establish that Basel I, by risk-weighting mortgages at only 50% of business loans, might also have contributed to the housing bubble. Basel II actually did something the recourse rule didn't and reduced the risk weight of mortgages to 35%, possibly even spurring greater demand, at least from other countries, from the banks of other countries, for um, mortgage-backed bonds. We don't know that these were contributory factors to the crisis. Um, we don't even have evidence that they were contributory factors to the crisis. But it does seem to us that it was a mistake for regulators not to think of that possibility um, when they issued the recourse rule in 2001. Secondly, we think it was a mistake for regulators not to think of the possibility that if for some other reason, for whatever reason, there were to be an asset bubble of some kind, whether in mortgages or something else, because other things were also um, the collateral for asset-backed securities, and all asset-backed securities with a high rating were privileged by the recourse rule. Regulators might have considered what would, what would happen if there was an asset bubble in some of these assets. Even if the, their own regulation didn't create it, there are asset bubbles all the time. So by encouraging banks to buy asset-backed securities, they were encouraging banks to buy into any potential asset bubbles. Um, and that appears to be what happened. On the other hand, the bankers also were clearly ignorant um, of the fact that what was widely considered to be a mortgage boom justified by America's growing population and growing incomes might actually be a mortgage bubble. It wasn't just the macroeconomic regulators like Ben Bernanke who were expressing the conventional view as late as 2005 that this is not a bubble. There may be a few local bubbles, but at a nationwide level, it's just a, a secularly justified boom. Um, but bankers who somehow had been um, prescient enough to realize that this was a bubble would have done everything they could to avoid at least mortgage-backed asset-backed securities, um, maybe even those that were implicitly guaranteed by Fannie and Freddie. So we have regulators who made a mistake because they were ignorant, arguably, and we have bankers who made mistakes because they were ignorant, ignorant of the future, ignorant in, in a non-culpable way, ignorant the way all of us are ignorant of the future, and ignorant in our analysis of present data and present trends and our projections from historical trends and data into the future. So this would seem to leave us with an ignorance-based political economy draw. Um, we're all fallible, we all make mistakes, we're all, we're all um, potentially ignorant of something important, or as the Austrian economists like to say, radically ignorant, ignorant of something that if we knew it would change our decision, but we don't know that we should know it. Donald Rumsfeld called it unknown unknowns. However, there is a difference between mistakes due to radical ignorance that are made by regulators, or legislators for that matter, and mistakes of the same sort that are made by bankers or other uh, private sector actors. And that is that other things being equal, private sector actors will make different mistakes or at least different decisions. Some of them may not be mistakes. Um, J.P. Morgan under Jamie Dimon was apparently 
quite concerned that this might be a mortgage bubble if you read accounts, journalistic accounts like Julian Tett's Fool's Gold. So they stayed as far away from this as they could. Citigroup apparently entertained no such doubts, so they jumped in with both feet. This is heterogeneous behavior. And that is, in our opinion, uh, my co-author and my opinion, just about the strongest argument that can be made for private sector decision making, which in economics means um, capitalist decision making. It's not that capitalists are heroic entrepreneurs. It's not that they work harder than everybody else and deserve to be rewarded for it. It's just that they have different ideas, like all human beings have different ideas. And therefore, the decisions they make will tend, other things being equal, to be heterogeneous. Now, regulators and legislators, they have heterogeneous opinions too. But then one regulation or law is issued or enacted that covers an entire jurisdiction. That means that whatever the political processes were that got a majority or the leader of the regulatory agency, whoever had the power over that decision, one opinion finally triumphs and is issued in the form of a law. And the whole purpose of laws, especially regulations, is to homogenize behavior, private sector behavior. In the case of capital adequacy regulations, the purpose was to homogenize behavior in the direction that bankers thought would, would be safe. It was to discourage risky business lending compared to risk-free sovereign debt lend lending or um, Fannie and Freddie lending or AAA, AA mortgage lending. This homogenization of behavior, as anyone who knows a little bit about, about complex systems and ecology uh, might say, creates systemic risk. It's better for a system to have heterogeneous sources of support and to be going in heterogeneous directions. Now, if the regulators were to hit on the perfect regulation, it would be better to homogenize the entire society in that direction, of course, than to have heterogeneous mistake-making um, by capitalists. But assuming that nobody is omniscient, it might be a better idea um, to have decision-making in several hands so that some of them might be good decisions, some might be bad decisions, but, if, but the bad decisions might, if we're lucky, not overwhelm the good decisions. Now, of course, if there's herd behavior toward a bad, a bad theory, if everyone learns the same thing in business school, for instance, and then they, go all, they all go into the private sector and they all end up running banks, and if what they learned in business school is a mistake, then you could get an outcome that is just as bad as the financial crisis. But all laws and regulations automatically homogenize behavior. That's their purpose, it's their function, and it's what comes from the fact that they're backed by the force of law. So arguably, we have here, and we're simply borrowing a page from Armin Alkin's 1950 paper um, on, on um, the economy or firms as sort of mindless automatons that you could wind up, I mean, this isn't the language that, Ar that Alkin uses, but you could picture corporations as sort of wind-up dolls that march in different directions, bump into different obstacles, um, in other words, make, make, make different mistakes, but sometimes um, make profits. In the limit case of mistake-making, then the firm is eliminated by bankruptcy. In the meantime, the firm experiences losses, maybe they'll try something else. Um, with the systemic risk created by regulation, 
we have to wait for a crisis to occur, meaning by, I'm, I'm defining crisis widely here, it need not be as drastic as the financial crisis was, but something that happens system-wide before we, we are even aware that we, we as a society, we as the regulators, have made a mistake, let alone do we then know what to do about it. The other advantage of the private sphere in this view, other than that it um, spreads risks around, it, it, it sort of diversifies the asset portfolio of the society as a whole into the hands of heterogeneous decision makers, is that error correction is easier, other things being equal, in the private sector. Because again, people can just try different things when they find that they're losing money and they, they figure something has to be done, so we'll try something else. Again, we're in the model of Alkian, where we're not attributing any wisdom to private sector actors. We're just attributing heterogeneity to, to them. So they try different things and they might hit on something right. Um, Joseph Schumpeter in Capitalism, Socialism, and Democracy, 1950, has a passage that's way too politically incorrect these days and also doesn't take account of what's been discovered about the, the health effects of smoking cigarettes. But he has a passage where he's comparing political propaganda to advertising, both of which are have similar intent and possibly similar effect. They're designed to get people to do things that they otherwise wouldn't do. Schumpeter concedes that um, commercial advertising can be as effective as political propaganda and it can get people to do things that are as, ir as irrational or at least unwise as political propaganda. But then he says, however, in the long run, the, the picture of the prettiest girl that ever lived will be powerless to maintain the sales of a bad tasting cigarette. In other words, the consumers, um, once they taste once they're dissatisfied with a the product, they can try another product. And what's important here is that they don't need to understand what went wrong with the first product. They don't need to understand whether the cigarette tasted bad because of the tobacco, because of the, the paper it was rolled in, because of the conditions in the plant in North Carolina, because of something that happened in the, in the, in the shipment, shipment from North Carolina to their store. All they have to do is try another brand. With regulations and all legislation, it's not that way at all. We can't just randomly toss out a new regulation and subject an entire society to it. We have to understand, if, if we perceive that there's been a mistake, we have to have an accurate analysis of what went wrong so that we can create a better regulation next time. Now the handout that I um, gave you, some of you may not have it, um, but in brief, it looks like this. Do any of you have it? Oh. Well, I'll just tell you what it says, and you can get them on the way out if you're interested. It graphs um, all, the fixed in, all the types of fixed income AAA-rated securities in the world from 1990 to 2009. And what you find, and it, what this excellent FT Financial Times journalist Tracy Alloway pointed out, is that in 2008, you suddenly see a rise of sovereign debt, which simply explodes in 2009. Now, there are a number of possible explanations for this. The one that the reporter favors and that is congruent with the argument we make in the book is that once the asset-backed securities, or at least mortgage-backed securities, were no longer good investments, at the same time that that was happening, 
as a result of the financial crisis, the regulators made it known loudly and clearly in every country that there would be a Basel III and that it would, it would impose higher capital requirements. In addition, in addition, national regulators said that they would go even farther and impose their own extra high levels of capital. Now, what is the effect of imposing higher capitals going, le levels going to be on banks that are already short of capital because they've suffered through the financial crisis? And the situation is, is yet unresolved. It's going to increase the pressure on them to put even more of their portfolios into the low risk weighted assets. And the zero risk bucket requires no capital at all. So that's where you would expect bankers to now dump their por portfolios. Rather, they would dump their remaining business loans, their consumer loans, and their asset-backed bonds in favor of sovereign debt. Now, without going into more regulatory detail, the EU um, issued a ruling in 2006 that exempted all EU banks from exceptions that were made in Basel II to the 0% risk weight for sovereign debt. Basel II was actually an improvement over, sovereign, uh, over Basel I in this respect because it applied ratings to sovereign debt, whereas Basel I just said Greek bonds, Cuban bonds, and U.S. bonds are just as good. Well, not Cuban bonds because they aren't OECD members, but, but you get the idea. All government's bonds uh, require zero capital. Basel II did it according to ratings. That was the big improvement of Basel II and the recourse rule, to use ratings to more finely calibrate risk levels. Um, however, EU, country, EU banks got to treat other EU sovereigns as equally riskless and therefore requiring no capital. This may be, we don't go into this in the book, which was finished in November 2010, but this may be why the European sovereign debt crisis is manifesting itself in a banking crisis, it's the, it's the need to bail out the European banks that's, that's primarily at issue, at least in the short run right now in Europe. But this may explain why it doesn't seem to have affected American banks as much as European banks. The point of this is not to try to a priori give you a theory of the possible new financial crisis that we're experiencing in Europe right now. I haven't done the research, and um, I hope someone else will. But it's to point out that the regulators did not learn from the mistake of Basel II, but they did learn a lesson. They just learned what is arguably the wrong lesson. The lesson they learned is, yes, we made a mistake in Basel II, or in the American case from Sheila Baer's testimony, yes, we made a mistake in issuing the recourse rule. What was the mistake? It wasn't that we tried to figure out what are the riskiest ass assets and steer banks' portfolios into what we think are the least risky assets is that we didn't set capital levels high enough. So right after the financial crisis, the regulators made known that the regulations would be toughened. That's what they thought was wrong with the old regulations. They weren't tough enough. But the effect of toughening the regulations is to magnify these different risk weightings, meaning that sovereign de debt gets even, even um, more subject to an asset bubble. And all the things that I said about the original mistake that the recourse rule regulators and the Basel II regulators may, uh, may have made applies to sovereign debt as well as potential problems that the regulators should have thought about, but they, you know, they had a perfectly logical story that goes back to the Great Depression. 
They had the story that we have reckless bankers because there's deposit insurance. That's why we need capital regulations. So the financial crisis must have been caused by greedy, reckless bankers. By definition, a bank that is insolvent had too little capital. So ex post facto, you can look back and say, see, these bankers should have known what we now know, which is that they had too little capital or that they were investing it in the wrong places. So they must have done that because they knew what they were doing but were too reckless and greedy to stop themselves. So we have to make the rules tougher. But in making the rules tougher, the regulators may again have created or at least contributed to another asset bubble, in this case, in sovereign debt. In the private sector, people make mistakes. People are dogmatic about the theories that led to their mistakes so they can persist in an error. They can go bankrupt. Um, they can keep dating the wrong type of person and never, never take a lesson from their bad experiences. It's not, it doesn't just apply to economics. But private sphere behavior is easier to correct when a mistake has been detected because of the fact that private sphere actors simply need to exit from the mistake. They don't need to understand the mistake. The regulators apparently still have not understood the potential mistake that they made going all the way back to 1998 in the Basel regime. And um, this may be the best argument. In my opinion, it is, it is the strongest argument for why we should minimize regulation wherever possible and maximize the scope of the private sphere. That's it.